Welcome to our lesson for today. If you have your Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. And we will be commencing our lesson from there. So, we are up to the climactic week of Jesus' life. We're up to the, the final moment where he's come to Jerusalem and all of his work has been building up. And finally, we're here in Jerusalem. This is the, um, the biggest feast um, in the biggest city for all of the Jews. This is the, the most climactic moment. And we are working our way through this week. And Jesus has said to his disciples that he's going up to Jerusalem and he will be killed here. And so we're, the, the closer we come through this week to the end, we know that his, his death is coming. And so these are the, you know, people take very seriously the final words that someone says. It's, it's usually a great reflection on their life or their work. And so these words that Jesus says, these teachings that he's giving right now, are some of his big, powerful, um, very important, very essential statements that he's leaving his disciples with before he dies. These are the final warnings that he gives. So today we're looking at Matthew 24 and 25. And in these chapters, um, these are not public teachings that he's giving. These are specifically to the disciples that he's um, telling these things. So last week we looked at his public sermons that he gave in the temple and the actions that he made in flipping over the tables and cursing the fig tree and giving some parables. But now he's going to just share these things intimately with his disciples um, about some, some final warnings that they need to hear before he goes to his death. Matthew 24 is where we're at. Have you ever tried to impress someone by showing them something that you thought was really cool and important and um, it made a big, big impact in your life, but then you try and share it with someone else and they're less than impressed? Uh, maybe it's your favourite song or a, a poem that stands out to you or an, a movie, a, a piece of artwork, um, your favourite cafe. You, you take them and you show them what is so important to you and something that you think is just the greatest thing on the planet. And then you show it to them and they couldn't care less about it. Or sometimes they're even critical about it and, and they don't like it. You know, the cafe doesn't have a very nice atmosphere and my coffee was burnt. Or this song, you know, it's, it's too electronic, it's too much rock, it's too classical, it's, it's whatever. And it's not what they were expecting. Um, there's a story I remember hearing about a, there's a, a tour driver in Washington, D.C. He's going around and he's got one of these people on the tour that's not impressed with anything. They don't care about anything that they're... Um, being shown and, and they think that back where they were from uh, it was far more impressive far far more important and so he drives past the the pentagon on the tour bus and he points out the pentagon and says it was built you know over this period of time and it cost this much money and this lady shouts out and she says uh, you know in our town we've got a really big building too and it took them half as long to build it and then he goes past the, the library and he says you know and and this is our big library here and and it took this long to build and she says we've got a bigger library at home and again it took half as long to build and he keeps doing this and she keeps on um, you know uh, upstaging him with all these things that she was familiar with and finally they come to the Washington Monument you know the big massive pillar kind of the pinnacle of of um, the city and, and it's this incredible monument and they drive past and the bus driver says nothing about it and the lady says well, what about that what about the 
big monument that um, is over there. Aren't you going to tell us uh, what that's about? And he says, well, I do this tour every day and it wasn't there yesterday, so they must have built it last night. <laughs> so the, you can sympathise there with the bus driver when someone's not um, impressed with what you're saying. Uh, you really want to just one-up them. You want, you want to show them something really impressive and you want them to be impressed. And so you can sympathise with the disciples here. Look at what happens in verse 1 and 2 of Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and he was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. You know, just to, he was in the temple. He knew what the temple was about. But, but as they're walking out, they, they kind of draw his eyes back and they say, look at that building. Look at that fine structure that you have there. And is he impressed? Does he say, wow, yeah, that's, that's incredible. That, I've never seen anything like that before. No, look at what his answer is. It's almost comical the way that he just bluntly replies to them. He says, but he answered them, you see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another um, that will not be thrown down. You know, imagine if someone came to Toowoomba and you showed them around the city and you showed them Grand Central and you said, isn't that impressive how big that building is? It's so big and it takes ages to get from one end to the other. And their response was, yeah, well, it's going to be torn down in a couple of years from now. It's going to be completely destroyed. You'd first of all think they're crazy and second of all, you'd think they were very um, bad guests and tourists in the city for not being impressed by the things that you thought they should be impressed by. So in verses 1 through 3 of Matthew 24, you have this incident playing out and then you have the questions that the disciples ask because obviously this is a weird thing for Jesus to say and, and they're a little caught off guard by it and they want to know what he's talking about. Verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay, so the disciples have a big question about this because they've just shown Jesus the most impressive building that's the pinnacle of the capital city and they expect him to be impressed with it and instead he's told them that um, it's going to be destroyed and not one stone is going to be left on another they're obviously going to want to know what what are you talking about here and and um, what's the uh, you know what what are you predicting and when are these things going to happen so they ask those questions in verses in verse three this is why the disciples were so confused by this statement so the the temple was destroyed um, about forty years after Jesus was talking here um, within forty years time. Uh, the Romans came into the city and they obliterated it and the temple was um, completely torn down. The only thing that's left of it was the, the temple mount, kind of the uh, retaining wall around it on one of the sides. That's the western wall that um, you see uh, modern day um, Orthodox Jews going to to pray to this wall. And uh, if you are watching the video and you can see the picture there, you can see how big some of these stones are. They're humongous stones. Uh, the ones that we see today, um, some of them are up to five metres in length. And Josephus says that some of the temple stones were up to 12 metres in length. You know, that's the size of an average um, bus today. So 
if you're looking at a temple that's got these humongous stones on it, and Jesus says, those stones won't be left stacked on each other. They are all going to be torn to the ground. You're going to be very, very um, concerned and confused uh, as to why he's saying these things. Not only was the temple large, but the temple was one of the real wonders of the ancient world. It was an incredible building that was known worldwide for how impressive it was. It was just recently constructed, just a couple of decades before Jesus was saying these things. Um, In the Talmud, the Jews wrote, he who has not seen the temple in its full splendor has never seen a majestic building. (laughs) That's how they looked at the temple. That's what they thought of um, this incredible temple that was built. Josephus says of it, Anyone would justly lament the destruction of such a work as this was, since it was the most admirable of all the works that we have seen or heard of, both for its curious structure and its magnitude, and also for the vast wealth bestowed upon it, as well as for the glorious reputation it had for its holiness. Josephus is saying, well, you know, of course this is going to bring about a great deal of lamenting, a great deal of sorrow, um, because this was such a, an incredible structure and everyone knew it. We looked last week at um, some artistic representations of what the temple was like. Let me just remind you of this structure. This was a, a phenomenal complex. I said before it would be like someone saying that Grand Central was to be destroyed, except Grand Central, in all its glory and splendor, is not even as big as what the temple complex was. It's, Grand Central is about half as big as, as uh, the temple was. Um, and, you know, Hannah and I were at Grand Central uh, a month or two ago, and we were shopping in Target, and then we needed something from Kmart, and we didn't even walk from one end to the other. We got in our car and we drove, and maybe that's a sign of our laziness, but Grand Central is a big building, and the temple is twice as big as that. Uh, maybe that's a... Uh, maybe I shouldn't have shared that. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's kind of sad, but it was a big day. So the temple is this incredible structure and it's just the the biggest part of Jerusalem it's it's set on the hill and and everyone is looking at it and everyone is looking at it in awe and wonder and Jesus is looking at it and saying yeah but it's going to be destroyed it's going to be flattened one day so the text says that they were on the Mount of Olives so this is approximately what it would look like from the Mount of Olives looking to the temple structure you would just see these humongous walls and and almost your whole line of sight would be taken up with this incredible building and looking at the western side of it you remember um, looking at jerusalem from above how much of the whole city of jerusalem was made up just by the temple you know it's it wasn't just a part of the city that people went to like a um you know oftentimes when you go to a city you see a, a catholic church on the on the tallest hill in town or something like that it was bigger than that the temple was like a fifth of the size of the city it took up an enormous um, actual percentage of the whole city of jerusalem so for jesus to say the temple is coming crumbling down this was an incredibly big statement to make and the disciples say what's going on there tell us more about that so in verses one to three as i said Here come the questions. And notice that I say the questions, not the question. 
Um, because even though there's only one question mark in most translations, really there are two main questions that are being asked here. And it's important to differentiate those two questions. They say, tell us, when will these things be? Um, what are these things? These things are what he said in verse 2, that um, there won't be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So tell us, when will these things be? And uh, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And it's important to tear those two questions apart because if you put them together and you think that that's just one question, then the rest of the chapter is going to be very confusing. You're going to be baffled as to what Jesus is saying. Because it goes like this. So in verse 4 through 35, he's going to answer that first question. He's going to answer, when will these things happen? And then in verses 36 through 51, he's going to answer, when will the end of the age occur? And the answers that he gives are very different to those two questions. To the first question, he says, well, it's going to happen within a generation from now. Look at what he says in verse 34, in Matthew 24 and verse 34. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And as you read through the rest of the verses there, he's actually giving a, a number of signs to look out for, a number of things that will happen that will show you that the temple is about to be destroyed, the city of Jerusalem is about to be ruined. And he knows it's going to be within a generation. So how long is a generation in the Bible? Well, how long did the Israelites spend in the wilderness? You know, They were there for a generation and that was 40 years. So about 40 years, um, that's how long it's going to take until these things happen. But then he goes on and he answers the second part of the question, when will the end of the age be? And this is a very different question that he's answering. You see in verses um, 36 through 51, he, he answers this and, and he essentially says in verse 36, I don't know. Um, and this is very different to what he just said about the temple being destroyed. So in verse 36, he says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. You see the difference here. He said about the temple, it's going to happen within this, this generation. It's going to have these signs attached to it. And then he says, but concerning that day, which day? The, the end of the age. Um, I don't know. The angels don't know. Only the father knows um, that day. Um, and furthermore, this event, the end of the age, is not going to come with big signs. And you're not going to be able to predict it easily. Look at verses 42 to 44. It says, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Do you let a thief break into your house when you know fully well when they're coming and what door they're going to break into or what window they're going to smash? No, if you know those details, you'll call the police or you'll lock the doors and, and put extra security things on. If you know what to expect, then it's not going to be like a thief in the night. 
And Jesus is saying that's exactly the point. To, to answer this second question of yours, there are no signs, there are no, there are no things that are going to happen that are going to tip you off. That's why you need to be prepared and you need to be ready. So, just to summarise all of that, all of chapter 24 there. There are two questions being asked. To one question he answers, it'll happen within this generation and here are the signs. To the next question he answers, I don't know when it will happen and there won't be any signs. It's really important to read the chapter like that, otherwise you'll be very, very confused as to what he's saying. So if you do put markings in your Bible, it might be good to put a marking there between verse 35 and 36 and to show that there are different things being addressed. You need to pay attention to what he's actually answering. And if you're reading through this chapter this week, if you're still following along and and reading through the chapters as we're going, you're going to come across some confusing verses. And I hope that doesn't surprise you Um, when you reach those verses and you think, wait, what is this talking about here? There are going to be some parts where you're going to be a bit confused. Is he talking about the destruction of Jerusalem or is he talking about the end of the world? Because it sounds like the end of the world, but it's in answering the first question. It's in that part. Um, Let's look, let's take one of the examples there in verse 29. And let me show you how... It can kind of be confusing when you first read it, but there are explanations and there are reasons why we can interpret these um, sensibly. So in Matthew 24 and verse 29, it says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the power of the heavens will be shaken. And you think, does that sound like the temple being destroyed by Romans? Or does that sound like the cosmic end of the world and the dissolution of the universe. Well, it kind of sounds like the latter, but it's in the former. It's in the answer to the first question. So how does that work out? I thought that these were clearly different things. Well, that's because it, it sounds weird to us and it sounds peculiar to us because you and I don't read Jewish apocalyptic literature in our spare time. We don't just for a hobby, decide to study how the Jews wrote in, a, in an apocalyptic style. And for the disciples who were listening to this, they knew what Jesus was talking about. They understood the style that he was getting at. They knew that in this verse, he's actually quoting from the Old Testament here. He's actually quoting from two passages in Isaiah. Let's just quickly go back to Isaiah, and you can read them for yourself, and you can understand very well Um, what he's talking about. So Isaiah chapter 13 is the first one. Isaiah chapter 13. And if you have a Bible there that has headings at the top, just notice what the heading at the top says. This is the judgment of Babylon, the city of Babylon. Okay, Is it talking about the end of the world here? No, it's talking about the end of a city. And look at what he says in Isaiah 13 and verse 10. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light, and the sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. So what's he talking about there? Is he talking about the end of the world? No, he's, he's saying the destruction of Babylon is going to be such a big event that in poetic language, it's going to be like the sun's not shining anymore. It's going to be like there's no moon, like the stars have all gone out. That's how 
um, cataclysmic this event is. That's how um, important this thing is in the big scheme of things. Let's go to Isaiah 34 as well. See the other part that Jesus is quoting. Isaiah 34 and verse 4. It says, All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their host, the stars, shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. And what's he talking about there? Is he talking about the end of the world? No, he's talking about actually the destruction of Edom, um, the the nation that was kind of a small nation next to um, where uh, Judah was. So Isaiah uses this, these big turns and these big illustrations to try and show you that something really important is happening here. And he doesn't mean it literally. He's just telling you that it's a really important thing and it will be like stars are falling down from heaven. It will be like the sun going out. And Jesus is doing the same thing when he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. It will be like the, st- the, the sky is falling down. It will be like the whole um, universe is collapsing in on itself. So when we're reading these verses... Understand, Matthew 24 is, is hard going for us because we are not comfortable. We're not usually reading um, Jewish apocalyptic literature styles. Um, and so some of these verses are going to sound a bit odd and sound a bit strange. And if you want, you know, I'm happy to, um, if you have questions about some of these verses, we can look at them and try and look at some of the context to them. But understand here that, that um, we don't have to take all of these things in a, 21st century, 21st century uh, literalistic manner, we can understand them in a Jewish context. Understand, Matthew 24 is mostly about things that happened 2,000 years ago. And what Jesus really wants you to focus on is the end of the age and being prepared. And that's why Matthew 25 is so important. Matthew 25, it has three main sections in it. The first is a parable about the ten bridesmaids. And the point of the parable, I won't go into this because Danny's covered this recently. The point of the parable is you need to be ready because you don't know, as Jesus has just said, you don't know when the second coming will occur. The second parable is found in verses 14 through 30. And it's a parable about people being given, given different things and they are to invest those things. They are to use what they've been given for their master. The point of the parable is very clear. When Jesus returns, we're going to have to give an account of what we've done and what we've used. And we need to be ready to give that account and we need to be able to show, yes, you gave me these things and, and I replied by giving you um, much more in return. I... I um, used what you gave me to contribute. And then he concludes in verses 31 to 46 with this final scene. And this is it. This is, after this, Jesus is not really going to teach anymore. Um, this is going to be kind of the final thing that Matthew records him teaching his disciples. And this is critical. I think this is such a good note to end on. Um, it's the story of this is what it's going to look like when Jesus returns, when he separates 
the sheep and the goats, when he separates, separates those who have been members of his kingdom, those who have submitted to him and, and put into practice the things that he's taught, and those who haven't. He says in verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And the final verse in verse 46. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We live in a world where there are a lot of things going on. The news doesn't struggle to fill up a half-hour program. I think it's a very confusing time to live. There are a lot of voices that tell us all sorts of different things that we should be doing, that we should be saying, that we should be thinking and believing. And a lot of us can be very confused and very overwhelmed at all of these things. And you can go mad because you're not sure what to do and you don't know what to believe and you don't know what to say. But Jesus, he doesn't overcomplicate it. Yes, he says some things that are hard to understand. And yes, he throws in a bit of Hebrew poetry just to keep it exciting. But what does he want you to do? He wants you to feed hungry people. He wants you to give thirsty people a drink. He wants you to clothe naked people. He wants you to visit people who are sick or in prison. He wants you to welcome strangers. Here's our main point for today. There are many things we don't know and many things we don't understand. But Jesus wants us to focus on what we do know and what we can do. Matthew 24 is a really complicated chapter. And Matthew 25 is this perfect balance to it that says... Yes, there are some really difficult things in Scripture, but there are also some really simple things as well. And don't get too caught up in the complex things that you forget about the really simple things that are there, that you know to do, that are easy to do, easy to understand, and yet so easy to forget. There's a Swiss theologian called Karl Barth. He lived in the 20th century. He took 32 years, I think, writing a, a massive book actually composed of 13 individual books. It's called Church Dogmatics. Uh, it took him decades to write and he didn't even finish it before he died. It's got over 6 million words to it. It's considered one of the pinnacles of, of literature in, in um, reformed uh, thinking. One time he was doing a, a lecture in the US and there was a Q&A section afterwards and someone said to him, if you had to summarise all of the books, all of your work, all of the six million words, if you had to summarise it, how would you summarise it? And he said, like this, 
Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I don't want to read church dogmatics anymore. After he said that, <laughs> if that's how simple it is, do, do we really need all of the depth? Do we really need all of the complicated parts? There's a quote attributed to Albert Einstein. He said, make everything as simple as possible, but not any simpler than that. And I think we need to have this understanding when we come to the Bible. Jesus didn't come to condemn people for their failure to understand Jewish apocalyptic literature. He, he condemned people not because they couldn't understand the hard stuff. He condemned people because they couldn't understand the easy stuff. Clear and the obvious teachings. Think of all the time that people have spent arguing over uh, Matthew 24 when they should have been doing Matthew 25 instead. I'm too busy studying books. I'm too busy reading every single opinion, every single thought on uh, exactly how to understand every word that Jesus said in Matthew 24. And Jesus says that his disciples will be known for what? For their comprehension skills in apocalyptic poetry? No, for their love for one another. Jesus has just condemned the Pharisees in Matthew 23 because they majored on the minors and they minored in the majors and let's not be guilty of doing the same thing here. I'm not saying Matthew 24 isn't important. I'm not saying it's not a great chapter and we can get a lot of things out of it. But we can't get so caught up in hypotheticals and abstracts and the difficult things that we forget the very simple and clear message. And this is what God has said all, all along. Remember in Micah 6 and verse 6 and 7, Micah asked that question, what, what should we do? What do we give to God? Do we give him sacrifices? Do we sacrifice our kids? Um, do we sacrifice bulls and goats? What does God want us to do? And Micah 6 8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does God want from you but to do justice and to love kindness and mercy and to walk humbly with God? 